Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. In 2007, China overtook Japan to become Australia's top two-way trading partner. For the first time since European settlement, Australia had as its primary trading interest a country that was not only not an ally or a friend of an ally, but a country with whom it did not share a language, culture or political values. This prompted much soul-searching among scholars and analysts as the country's core economic interests appeared to be moving in a different direction from its strategic interests. Yet for much of the past decade, even as trade has grown remorselessly, the economic relationship was largely a one-dimensional trading link. We would sell iron ore, coal, gas, and education, this is a university podcast after all, and we'd buy finished goods in return. So while it was a broad relationship, it was not especially deep. But in recent years, this has begun to change, as outbound Chinese investment has trained its eye on Australia. Australia is a country that depends on investment, and normally we can't welcome it enough. But money coming from the PRC is different, and it's causing considerable tensions. From the kerfuffle about the leasing of the Darwin port to Chinese firm Landbridge, to the Foreign Investment Review Board's rejection of investments in key infrastructure and agribusiness projects, there's something about capital from the People's Republic of China that unsettles Australians, both the public and the policy elite. Joining me to discuss the state of play in this rapidly changing and hugely important aspect of the Australia-China relationship is Hannah Bretherton. Hannah is a project coordinator and researcher at China Matters. She is also a current participant in the CSIS Pacific Forum Young Leaders Program. Welcome to the program, Hannah. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a bit of a scene setter and have a bit of a chat about the basic state of play of Chinese investment in Australia. Um, what's the scale of it? Um, what proportion is it in comparison to other countries? Where are they investing, both in terms of kind of sectors and where in Australia is, is this money landing? Yeah, so Chinese investment in Australia uh, in 2016 actually increased by 56%. So that exceeded the overall growth rate of China's um, outbound direct investment. So we are China's second highest destination for attracting investment, just behind the United States. In 2015, in terms of the sectors attracting Chinese investment in Australia, 45% is in real estate. So it's quite a significant chunk. And to put that into perspective, mining's only at 9%. So in terms of uh, looking at where in Australia Chinese investment flows through, we've got New South Wales attracting the bulk of Chinese investment in real estate, attracting 94%. That's just in real estate. But we also need to remember with real estate that overall foreign ownership is actually not that high. So in 2016, we saw the share of foreign buyers in new properties actually fell to about 10% overall. So that's the lowest level since 2012. Um, The other interesting point to note from our most recent data is that uh, Chinese investment in renewable energies comprised 20%, uh, but that was mainly due to one large deal, which is uh, the Pacific Hydro deal in Victoria. Uh, There were also some really large deals in the health sector um, in 2015, which was the first time we've seen the health sector appear on the map for Chinese investment in Australia. And looking at, I guess, the overall flows, New South Wales attracts just under half. So 49% of overall Chinese investment goes to New South Wales. And then we've got Victoria attracting 34%. 
Um, the really fascinating thing to look at when you're talking about uh, the different states within Australia is Western Australia. So in 2012, WA received 56% of the flow of Chinese investment. And fast forward to 2015, that number had receded to 1%. So clearly there's been a bit of a shift in the post-mining boom order. I'm always struck by the fact that Australia is China's second biggest investment market, if that's the right term for it. You'd think, okay, US, sure, number one. But surely you'd think somewhere like Britain, Germany, France, Italy, any one of the um, G7 economies. Why is Australia number two? Yeah, so there are a few key reasons. And it really does come down to the bottom line for Chinese investors. One is long-term stable economic returns, uh, the low sovereign risks, a stable policy environment, which is an interesting one we might want to come back to. Yeah, both sovereign (laughs) risk and uh, stable policy environment. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Then we've got uh, mature financial markets and, of course, a transparent legal system. But we actually need to look overall at what Australia is attracting. So China only accounts for 2.5% of Australia's total stock foreign investment. That's not including Hong Kong. And 4.4% of foreign direct investment overall. So there's definitely a lot of room to grow. So if you're looking at the China story, it's a growth story rather than itself being a big story right now. Definitely, yeah. So, okay, let's get to the question of how, you know, how do countries regulate this? Or in particular, how does Australia deal with inbound investment? You know, as is well known, Australia's growth depends on um, Mm -hmm. investment from abroad. How do we politically try to manage that? Yeah, so the government has a body called the Foreign Investment Review Board. And there are various thresholds that trigger a foreign investment review, and it really depends on the sector and the country and type of investor. So FERB reviews all investments by government-owned foreign companies, and all investors are bound by Australian domestic laws, of course, and must comply with any additional regulations placed on them by FERB. So it has quite a lot of oversight in terms of what we're willing to accept and, and not. And so it can set conditions. It can say, okay, you can invest, yeah. but you have to do, huh? Yeah, exactly. So most people will have probably heard about the knockback of the investment in Osgrid. And there was also the Kidman cattle station deal, which was knocked back a couple of times by the treasurer um, until Gina Reinhardt came along and saved the day. Despite Chinese bidders being approved for um, Ausgrid, it was at the last minute that Scott Morrison said this will not be in Australia's national interest. So what this really tells us about our review process is that there's sort of a lack of a clearly um, defined process. And so um, there was a Senate inquiry into this last year Um, And it found that while national security is a legitimate concern, um, the national interest test is applied um, very inconsistently and it seems very arbitrary. And that's due to the sort of um, discretionary powers held by the treasurer. So ultimately what what happens is there's a board review, then the final decision is in the hands of the treasurer Mm -hmm. and the test is a fairly nebulous, is this in the national interest? Exactly, yes. So FERB had approved the bidder into Osgrid and then the treasurer came along and said, no, we're not going to go ahead. So there's no requirement to provide reasoning. I guess you can say it's national security. I mean, that is fair enough. Uh, Obviously, we can't reveal some of those highly confidential um, top secret concerns but the real issue is the lack of transparency around the process 
So this is something we um, really need to be careful about in terms of the message that it sends to investors about Australia as a stable policy environment. We risk losing out on that much needed capital. I guess there's also that question you mentioned that government-owned entities are automatically given to the, the review board. Coming out of China, there's a particular complexity in that in the sense that, yes, there's plenty of state-owned enterprises and we know those, but there's also those other enterprises that have links to the state and mm. there's that whole messy party-state complexity that occurs in China. Does that create the sense, I think, that Chinese investment is treated differently? You know, after the Osgood decision, you heard a lot of you know, people who I deal with saying, you know, we are treated differently, we're discriminated against if that was not a Chinese firm, mm. but an, an American firm or a Singaporean firm um, or a Japanese firm, wouldn't be a big deal. Um, yeah. I mean, with Ausgrid, we will never know. But in terms of China being treated differently, yes, it is in some sectors. So when you're comparing it to countries outside Asia, for example, in agricultural land investments, um, the screening threshold for China um, was lowered from 252 million to 15 million in 2015, which is quite a significant drop. But this also applies to Korea and Japan. But then you look at the US, Chile and New Zealand, and they can invest in agricultural land up to just over $1 billion without screening. So that is a huge difference. And that is something where you can see that the thresholds for triggering a review are very different for China. But it's not just China, it's also Japan and Korea. Yeah. The gaps are huge. I mean, 15 million in agribusiness terms, that's chicken feed, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, FERB, it's, it's got a tough gig, I think, and it's been under a lot of scrutiny recently. And um, one of the reasons why is the Darwin Port deal that you mentioned. There was a quite an important person who wasn't really happy about that deal, and that was US President <laughs> Barack Obama who actually sort of um, reprimanded Turnbull about that deal. So that was the case that prompted this big inquiry into FERB last year, and there have been a number of changes to the review processes since then. And when so what was, just, to, just to go back for a second, yeah. so what was Obama's concern, just for those who, who weren't um, Okay, so from Obama's perspective, we're talking about the Northern Territory where there are a few thousand um, US Marines there. I guess his perspective is that allowing um, Chinese ownership of Darwin Port, which has got US ships coming in and out, that there may be some kind of risk to do with intelligence gathering. And he basically said to Turnbull, let us know next time. So keep us in the loop because it affects us as well. FERB had actually approved it. I mean, it went through this sort of huge process, collaborating with other government bodies such as ASIO, Department of Defense. So, you know, there were numerous bodies involved that had really scrutinized the deal and said, yep, it's, there's no risk, let's go ahead with it. So it was an interesting one because it passed through and then it created all this controversy further on. So. But interestingly, the Darwin Port's sort of classified under this, um, I suppose, sector we would call critical infrastructure. And since um, the beginning of this year, the Australian government 
has established a special critical infrastructure within the Attorney General's Department to manage the complex and evolving national security risks. So there's going to be um, particular scrutiny on these areas now following that Darwin Port deal. So let's turn to the politics of the investment now, whether in your judgment you think Australia is handling the politics of Chinese investment in Australia well, because on, on the surface of it, they've got money, we need money, we've got mm. areas they want to invest in, Yeah, they want to come, and yet the politics of it seem fairly fraught. I mean, it is a difficult one, and I don't think we're really handling it very well at the moment. I think there's a lot of work to do to sort of get our story straight on what we consider to be acceptable and what we, you know, knowing how to balance the need for foreign investment and also um, weigh up any risks um, or challenges that comes with that. Um, But we've got to remember that there's always been strong opposition to foreign investment in Australia. And a lot of people sort of cite the large investment from first Britain and then the United States and then Japan, which was in the 1980s. There were some similar concerns. But there is a difference with China. It comes with a whole extra set of baggage, I think. And we really can't divorce this from the broader geopolitical uncertainties that are facing Australia and the region. And I think that it's quite understandable there's a sense of anxiety around China. The majority of fears about Chinese investment are unfounded, but I definitely understand that China's just such a huge unknown and that leads to a lot of misunderstanding about really what's going on. And I think with the political situation, the government itself is anxious. And so that in some ways contributing to this sort of politicised and uncertain climate where the government can't seem to communicate a consistent message about Chinese investment to the public. It's not just the public wrestling with these big issues, it's the government and it really needs to take charge, figure out what's going on and then properly explain it. Do you think the investment issue is a sort of subset of that bigger, we just haven't yet figured out this exactly. China-US-Australia triangle or, yeah. or, or how's Australia going to live in a world of in which China is such a big player? Definitely. And I think that's a really big difference with the US and Japan is, you know, we may have had some opposition to investment from those countries, but we, we have so much in common with those countries politically that I guess there was just a better understanding and a better sense of certainty about how to deal with those countries. And it does apply to that broader context of how we relate to China and all of the uncertainties of dealing with a country that is not a democracy and that has very different political processes. So it's definitely connected. The fact of the matter is Chinese firms operate in ways that other firms don't operate. I mean, Mm. that's that's a simple fact. And if there's any country in the world where a state-owned enterprise will be used for strategic and security purposes by the government if if circumstances were to arise, it's China. You know, so there's a, in a way that a Japanese multinational or an American multinational or a British multinational for that matter, you you would never behave in that way. Um, Yeah, and I think that's a valid concern. And um, I think it's really muddled in Australia when we're talking about that, because if you're talking about those connections to the Chinese government, all companies have connections to the Chinese government. So when the Darwin Port thing happened, these media articles saying that they had a big scoop on Landbridge, which is a private company, saying, oh, we found that they've got connections with the Chinese government or political party. That's not 
news you know that is not a surprise we know that so in that sense the distinction between private investors and soes is actually a false distinction but having said that if we have you know the strong kind of domestic laws and regulations and conditions placed on any foreign investor from FERB, then we shouldn't really be worried about that i mean that to me is more of an issue about privatization if we're worried about you know sensitive materials coming into the hands of a foreign government whether it be china or somebody else then why are we selling off those materials in the first place you mentioned public opinion previously and i was just wondering what your sense of where public opinion is i mean you talked about how politicians can shape and inform public debate more generally but wonder what the data tells us about what does the public think about chinese investment yeah well i think there's a huge gap between the public perception and the reality of what's actually happening in chinese investment in australia and and you know that's not the public's fault that is up to the government to explain so probably the greatest example of this is chinese investment in australian farmland so there are often headlines about China buying up the farm and, you know, you even hear stories around regional Australia about the neighbouring farm getting a knock on the door from a Chinese investor, putting pressure on them to sell up. And, you know, it is a tough environment for local farmers at the moment for a whole set of other reasons. But the reality is that Chinese investors own less than 0.5% of Australian farmland. I don't know what people think it is, but I know that 69% of Australians are strongly against foreign ownership of farmland. So, 69%? Yeah, wow. Strongly so opposed. Wow. Definitely. So, yeah, it's obviously a key concern. Um, and one of those fears is that we're all going to go hungry because we're shipping off all of our food to Asia. But in actual fact, we produce enough food every year to fill the stomachs of 60 million people. So that's nearly you know, three times the population. And 86% of our farmland is Australian owned. There's definitely a bit of a gap between um, the perception and the reality. I was involved in a study last year by the UTS Business School and in partnership with ACRI and it surveyed public opinion on um, Chinese investment in agricultural land. It was interesting that the number one issue for the public was the share of foreign ownership. So that's more Mm. about what sort of stake does that foreign company have. The next thing on the list was the length of the lease. So when you're looking at Darwin Port, that was a 99-year lease, and people really freak out about the fact that, you know, what's going to happen the next 100 years? We don't know what's going to happen. You know, what if we got into a war with China or whoever? You know, then people are concerned, again, about what that ties us to in terms of the uncertainty. And then the final thing was the country of origin. So China was the least preferred country with the US number one. But there are those other factors that came in before that that we need to be looking at because those are the things we can actually change in looking at our review process to allay those concerns. And, you know, if we put some more conditions on the share or the, the length of the lease or local operation of foreign companies, you know, making sure that 
is sort of the jobs aren't also going along with that um, control, then those are the sorts of things that I think will make Chinese investment a lot more um, acceptable for the public. 2015 was the biggest year since 2008. Do you think that investment's going to continue the way it has? Will 2015 maybe be another 2008? What's the mood in China? Where's your sense of where this is going? Well, yes, 2015 was a big year um, because of the number of high net deals, including seven deals worth more than 500 million. Um, In terms of the, I guess, the situation in China at the moment, China's placing a number of capital controls on both companies and individuals because they're worried about the money that's going offshore and the foreign exchange reserves that are sort of not dwindling, but they're rapidly sort of spending to kind of keep their currency afloat. So they're definitely scrutinizing the sort of overseas cash transactions, which includes for individuals. That's partly kind of an end to stopping trying to clamp down on the anti-corruption stuff or people taking their money out of the country. Yeah, exactly. And so overseas investments of more than um, 10 billion, which is a lot, will be under greater scrutiny. And and they're also just really clamping down on investments that are sort of not within a company's core business. So those are sort of the more illegitimate reasons for placing capital overseas is, you know, I don't know, a mining company might suddenly set up an um, entertainment business in Sweden. And it's really about just holding capital outside of the country but that's not a big part of the story you know those are um, obviously not the majority of countries but i don't think that those capital controls will have much of an impact on chinese investment here but moving forward i suppose what we need to look at you know the chinese middle class really value premium quality products particularly in health and the lifestyle kind of industries. And we've seen that with the popularity of things like, you know, Swiss vitamins, Blackmores, and also the fact that sort of health was the first time on the map in terms of um, the sectors that are attracting Chinese investment. So Australia has a reputation for producing clean, green, high quality products. Those are the things that are really attractive for the Chinese consumer. So I think we need to be looking at those areas and also renewables, which we, again, we saw with that Pacific Hydro deal, but you know, there's so much room for improvement on that front. It's interesting in China in 2015, they invested 102 billion US dollars in renewables abroad. And that was more than the US and Europe combined. It's announced that it wants to spend um, more than $360 billion in the next three years. So I'm hoping Australia can sort of attract some of that and really collaborate on the renewable energy front. The other thing going forward, I mean, this is a, another big question mark that we sort of don't um, know too much about yet, but it's the One Belt, One Road initiative. And we saw that Foreign Minister Wang Yi and um, Julie Bishop a few weeks ago um, stood up and said, you know, the One Belt, One Road will provide all these opportunities for Northern Australia. So we haven't seen anything yet. 
And it's interesting because I've, a few of the projects under the One Belt, One Road in Central Asia have sort of been retrospectively applied. So we don't really know yet if it's more of a marketing exercise, but it is a huge infrastructure project. We're just yet to see whether we can capitalise on any of those benefits. Yeah, the Belt and Road is, we're still kind of waiting to see, but the ambition's big and the money on the table mm. is, is enormous. Mm. Um, the point I take from what you're saying is the politics around the Chinese investment in things like health and the like, no one cares too much about that. That's fine. Yeah. It's just a business decision. Critical infrastructure, mm. not so much. And if Belt and Road is about infrastructure, then well, you that's know, it. watch this space. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing we just have to remember with the One Belt, One Road, many of the companies implementing those projects will be SOEs. The one sort of major deal, it wasn't connected with One Belt, One Road, although some are saying it was, was the Darwin Port deal. And, you know, that didn't go down too well. So how are we going to see these other major infrastructure projects moving forward in the north of the country? A very interesting one to watch. That's all the time that we have. Thanks for being part of the program, Hannah. Uh, you can follow Hannah on Twitter at HC Bretherton, that's H-C-B-R-E-T-H-E-R-T-O-N, or me at Nick Bisley. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia. Thanks for listening.